What I really wanted to tell you is that there were many students that were involved in getting us here. But most importantly, the two students involved are sitting on the stage. One is the unstoppable force, Sarah Rubin. The other is Laura Parker. And if there are anybody, if there are any people, if there are any of you that appreciate energy, perseverance, and vision, I would like you on your feet to thank them for bringing Michael Paul in here. I'm not Michael Pollan either, um, <laughs> nor am I wearing a bow tie. Um, but I would like to thank Mark Smith and Laura Parker for making this event a huge success, and also all of you who have supported the Food Chain series, which started just as a daydream um, last May to talk about every issue we could relating to our food system. And we never thought it would get this big, but here you all are, so it's because of you that this is happening. So thank you all for coming and being our supporters. Um, and Food Chain events are designed to be challenging and thought-provoking um, on many levels. So tonight we present to you a speaker who has been in the business of challenging conventional thought for many years. Um, in a series designed to approach food systems from diverse angles, it's only necessary for us to feature a prominent writer who has investigated the intersections of our food system with myriad facets of life. It was in 2002 that I first encountered Michael Pollan's work and also read the first piece of journalism that actually made a very tangible um, change in my life. And it was a Sunday morning when my family has a tradition of sitting around the kitchen table reading the New York Times, and it still probably smelled like leftover, you know, dinner from last night, chicken smell in there from our Shabbat dinner the night before. Um, and it had been a kosher chicken, which at that point in time was the only type of chicken that was cooked in our kitchen. And we read a cover story called Power Steer by Michael, Michael Pollan that followed a steer number 534 from, to quote, insemination to steak. And this article provoked a pretty intense debate in my family's kitchen. And it eventually expanded to a debate with the rabbi, and eventually we quit kosher and became a grass-fed variety of a family. So you could say that Michael Pollan rivaled God in this case, um, which is not something that journalists ordinarily waltz into your kitchen doing on a weekly basis. Um, but this was a fairly monumental experience for me and hopefully has changed my chronic health. We'll see in a few years. Um, Mr. Pollan started out his writing career in high school when he reviewed movies and food really as an excuse to take people out on dates, um, according to him. <laughs> and he's had a remarkably abundant career since then, and he's published four books, most recently The Omnivore's Dilemma, which the New York Times selected as one of the five best nonfiction books of 2006. It is a thorough and detailed narrative with beautiful and verbose prose. Um, one observation for a brief quote was... 
The feed yard's thunderously beating heart and dominating landmark, a rhythmically chugging feed mill that rises, soaring and silvery in the early morning light, like an industrial cathedral in the midst of a teeming metropolis of meat, in a rolling black sea of bovinity. Mr. Pollan's earlier books are Second Nature, A Place of My Own, and The Botany of Desire, A Plant's Eye View of the World, which is both a witty and dramatic book that um, probes demographic, economic, spiritual, and scientific histories of four botanical commodities. Um, in there is the tale of Johnny Appleseed, who it turns out was actually getting a lot of little kids drunk out in um, you know, the pioneering days. And Pollan seamlessly navigates the overlap between sharply constructed boundaries in our world. He examines the intersections between the natural and the human world, the contradictory approach Americans have towards worshiping and destroying wilderness, the Dionysian and the Apollonian, all in compelling narratives that make highly technical information accessible to the ordinary reader. His work commands attention from all members of the public. There's both a top-down approach that reaches out to consumers who maybe have no knowledge of where their food comes from, but can make a difference in how they shop, and the bottom-up for the people who are out there growing our food as their daily life. Um, Pollan says that he reads research material as he's working on any given project promiscuously, but then in turn he writes works that demand a faithful, intimate relationship from their readers. Pollan has been a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine since 1987, and his work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, where he served for many years as executive editor, also Mother Jones, Time Magazine, The Nation, and Gourmet Magazine, among many others. His work is anthologized in the Best American Science Writing and the Norton Book of, of Nature Writing. He's been recognized several times for his excellence in journalism. Awards include the James Beard Award for Best Magazine Series in 2003, and the Reuters IUCN 2000 Global Award for Environmental Journalism, which recognized his coverage of genetically modified crops. He currently serves as the Knight Professor of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and is the director of the Knight Program in Science and Environmental Journalism there. In The Omnivore's Dilemma, he wrote, the dream of liberating food from nature is as old as eating. And tonight he'll offer us some insight into contemporary manifestations of this dream that people have been thinking about since we began to eat. The subject of tonight's talk is The Omnivore's Dilemma, Searching for the Perfect Meal in a Fast Food World. It is an honor to present to you a journalist whose work serves the entire global population and who is redefining how we approach one of our most basic commodities. Please join me in welcoming Michael Pollan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thanks for your warm welcome. Um, I just want to start by, by, uh, by, by repeating a um, uh, gesture of appreciation to Sarah Rubin, uh, especially, and, and Laura Parker. Um, I think this is the first time I've ever shown up to give a speech anywhere, and I've been doing a lot of public speaking in the last year, where I never talk to someone uh, in authority or administration or really, you know, a grown-up um, before, <laughs> before just, okay, I'll come, I'll show up. Um, but uh, they, they were just so persistent and, um, and so, but so nice about it. And uh, it, it really was heroic because I, 
I, I thought I was done speaking for the year and I was going to go back in my cave and do some new writing and, and Sarah lured me out. And, uh, but I'm very glad she did. It's a wonderful uh, community and, it, and, and from what I've seen of it today, a very special place. And I want to thank Mark Smith too for his hospitality today, showing me around. Um, you know, I feel like this is a special place to be addressing these issues. Uh, Colorado, the Front Range, is uh, the site of some of the best and the worst tendencies in the American food system today. Um, you know, it's no accident, I think, that Eric Schlosser, who's a, a dear friend of mine, came here uh, and centered a lot of his research uh, because of the scale of the feedlots here and the, uh, you know, the the, the really uh, huge and brutal slaughterhouses that are nearby. Um, and, uh, you know, in the same way Upton Sinclair went to Chicago to really look at the heart of darkness of, of American food, American meat industry, Eric came to this neck of the woods uh, to update that story 100 years later. And, um, and I, I think that it was well chosen for that reason. On the other side, however, and represented in this room are some very positive tendencies, very hopeful tendencies in the American food system. And, uh, and I'm thinking of, uh, of ranchers like Dale Lassiter and uh, Mike um, Calicrate and uh, um, who else did I meet today? And, uh, oh, and Dan, Dan Hobbs from the uh, Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. There's a very interesting and vibrant local food community, especially built around ranching, but not just ranching. Um, that is developing here, and it's very exciting to see. And I want to focus today on, on this issue of local food uh, and the importance of it and how we might begin and why we might begin to, to rebuild local food economies. Um, but first, I, I do want to look at the, the, the dark side for a little bit um, and uh, give you, you know, a brief sketch of, of kind of how we got into such trouble with food. Um, you know, this book that I wrote is really a journey um, I wrote it not as an expert, um, but as an eater. As an eater who'd been really confused about what is the most simple fundamental question that any creature asks, which is, what should I have for dinner? Um, that this question has gotten so fraught and complicated in America is really uh, very unusual historically. People have not worried that much about what to eat. They ate what was handy. They ate what their culture told them to eat, which is a fancy word for what your mom tells you to eat. They, um, and they ate um, uh, what, their, um, uh, what was available. And um, that we have, should have gotten confused struck me as, as odd and, and in need of explanation. Um, so I decided to write a book that would try to answer that very simple question. Um, and what I found, though, is that there is no simple answer to that question. Uh, and that the effort to answer it required several journeys. Um, I could not answer the question, what should I eat, until I answered an even more fundamental question, which is, well, what the hell, what, what the hell am I eating? And that's not at all clear. So I, I, I'm a nature writer, uh, and, and my answer to things is usually to figure out, to go to nature and, and find the answers there. I'm, I'm a slightly different kind of nature writer than the usual one, especially in this, in this part of the world, you know, who like to go camping. I don't like to go camping. So I, I like to write about nature close to home. I like to write nature, about nature in the garden and, and uh, on, on my plate, and, uh, because, you know, we engage nature there, too. We don't just engage nature in the wilderness. 
And in fact, the really hard questions we need to answer about nature today and our relationship to the natural world, we're not going to answer in the wilderness. We're going to answer in the kitchen and in the garden and on the farm and in our everyday lives um, and in the car, obviously. Um, and so I realized that you know food was represented our most important engagement with the natural world. It is, if you think about it. Uh, your, it it's how you change the world the most. It's how we as a people change the world the most. Uh, it is how we have uh, changed our habitat. Um, it's how we changed the composition of species on this planet. It's how we engage with other species most, most profoundly. So to understand that with regard to, to, to our eating choices, I realized I had to conduct some food detective stories. Whoa. <laughs> I feel like mini-me. I'm not, I'm not going to turn around again. Um, I had to conduct some food detective stories and see if I could follow the food the way Woodward and Bernstein followed the money. And, and of course, when you're following food, where do you end up? Well, you end up in a farm. You end up where all food comes from, which is a plant photosynthesizing in a field or in water somewhere. Everything we eat begins with that amazing episode of a plant, and only plants can do this, converting solar energy into carbohydrates, into sugars, into, into food. Um, they either capture that energy and we eat them directly, or they capture that energy and an animal eats that and we eat that animal. And, but that's basically how it works. So my question, the first question I had, and, which, and this really led me into the heart of darkness of the industrial food system, was where, if you wanted to find the field behind the McDonald's meal, the field behind the supermarket meal, where would you end up? And this was the first. I had several surprises, several aha moments in the writing of this book. And the answer to this really did surprise me. It may not surprise everybody in this room, but I had no idea that all that industrial food, and that's, that's the word I use for food that is um, the product, essentially, of the post-World War II food system uh, that culminates either in a supermarket meal or a fast food meal, um, all begins in a field of corn. Number two, yellow corn, commodity corn. Um, we don't think of ourselves as corn eaters. You know, Mexicans think of themselves as the people of corn. But what I learned, to my astonishment, was that we are more the people of corn than the Mexicans are. Because all of our meat is corn. Our eggs and our milk is corn. All our processed food is corn and soybeans, corn's sidekick in the field and in the processed food. Um, our sweeteners, corn. Um, in fact, more than half of the products in the supermarket come from corn. And in the course of writing this book, I actually had an opportunity to prove this and did things like uh, uh, working with a, bi a biologist at Cal, where I teach, um, we put a McDonald's meal through a mass spectrometer. And lo and behold, I didn't know this when I started out. Um, I am the Knight Professor of Science Journalism, but I really don't know that much about science. Um, that a mass spectrometer looking at the carbon in food can actually identify, to a certain extent, where it comes from. And so that McDonald's meal um, can be traced even after that corn is turned into soda even after that corn is turned into chicken nuggets, the machine can still see the corn in it. 
Um, and so what I found out was that McDonald's meal, is the, the soda is 99% corn, all the sweetener. Uh, the chicken nuggets are about 75% corn. The Big Mac is 56% corn. The buns are 15% corn. Even the French fries, the French fries? Even the French fries are 40% corn. Now, how can that be? They're fried in corn oil, where most of the calories come from. So we are the people of corn. And indeed, if you uh, compared us, if you compared uh, a little slip of hair or a fingernail uh, of an American eating the typical American diet with a Mexican, where Mexicans still, even though they eat a lot of tortillas, they sweeten their soft drinks with cane sugar still, and they still fatten their cattle to a large extent on grass. Um, we, as this uh, uh, biologist put it to me, uh, and I quote it in the book, uh, through the eyes of this machine look like corn chips on two legs. <laughs> now, the question is, why is that a bad thing? Um, and the reason it's a bad thing is a complicated uh, there's a complicated answer to that, but I want to be very brief about it. I want to explain to you why it's unsustainable to build an entire food system around one or two plants. The real, I mean, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but four, between four plants essentially now represent 80% of the calories in our diet. And that's corn, soybeans, wheat, and rice. Um, why is that a bad thing? And, and corn being now the leader of those, uh, those crops. Well, there's an environmental argument and there's a health argument. We are, as, as the title of my book aims to suggest, we are omnivores. We need between 50 and 100 different chemical compounds to be healthy. Um, and you're not going to get that from a diet of processed corn. You're not going to get that from fast food. And it's one of the reasons that we find uh, in, in Oakland, near where I live, children today from the inner cities are showing up in health clinics with nutritional deficiencies. They're overweight, but they have nutritional deficiencies like rickets because they're drinking more soda than milk. Um, these, are, these are nutritional deficiencies we thought we'd banished 100 years ago. Um, so this diet is making us sick. Um, I want to look at this word, and as an, in, in, as an environmental matter, monocultures are unsustainable. You can only keep them going. And we have 88 million acres of corn. And I haven't even mentioned ethanol. And we can talk about it in the question period. But that number is going to go up dramatically. There is so much corn acreage that's going to be planted this spring, so many soybean fields that are going to be skipped this year, that to keep all that corn going is going to take massive amounts of fertilizer, massive amounts of pesticide, and all of that is going to end up in the waterways, and all of that, much of that is going to end up in our bodies. Um, so it's unsustainable from that point of view. But this word unsustainable gets thrown around a lot, and I just want to take a moment to, to say precisely what I think that word means. You know, there's a, there's a line in Confucius that before we can go forward with our politics, with our social life, we need what he called the rectification of the names. We have to recover the meaning of words that we use in a sloppy way. And unsustainable or sustainable is one of those. But it means precisely, um, I think, that, that a practice or a system cannot go on indefinitely or as it has because, because it is destroying the resources or the conditions it depends on. Collapse or radical change is only a matter of time. It's a zero-sum system, a process of subtraction that can't go on indefinitely. And I think that this is abundantly clear in the case of uh, industrial food. 
So what does it mean to say the food system is unsustainable? Well, I'm just going to run through a couple um, characteristics, and there are more you could list. High on our minds is energy. We're now using two calories of, foss um, two calories of fossil fuel energy for every calorie. Um, we, I'm sorry, we used to get two calories of food energy for every calorie of fossil fuel energy we invested in agriculture. Now, 10 calories of fossil fuel energy to get one calorie of food energy. That can't go on, um, not indefinitely. 17% of the fossil fuel we use that we burn in this country is going to feed ourselves industrially. It's a big part of the climate change problem. And where is that energy going? It's going into nitrogen fertilizer, all made from natural gas. It's going into equipment on the farms. It's, and it's going, 40% of it, is going into moving food around the country and around the world. This corn food economy is an economy based on concentrated, value-added foodstuffs that um, get moved a great distance. Um, and we have an expanding world trade in food that, although it has some advantages for some people, uh, is a huge consumer of energy. Um, there's a wonderful quote from the economist Herman Daly that in Mark Smith's honor I, uh, I, I, I found, but he talks about the fact that um, the Danes are buying sugar cookies from America today, and Americans are buying sugar cookies from Denmark today, and wouldn't it make a lot more sense to just trade recipes? <laughs> this can't last. Pollution. As I said, 80 million acres, soon to be 88 million acres of monoculture can't survive without heavy doses of petrochemicals. Um, these end up in the water. There's, these are the reason that mothers in Des Moines in the spring, when the runoff is worse, cannot give their children tap water. It ends up in the Gulf of Mexico eventually, where there is now a dead zone the size of New Jersey. That's the toilet bowl of the corn monoculture, is that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Health. What is this doing to our health? Yeah, we have lots of cheap food in this country, plenty of it, way too much as a matter of fact. But our food system, yes, providing enough food for everybody is a bottom line uh, condition for a food system, but more important goal of a food system is to keep its population healthy. And this, our food system is not doing. We have an epidemic of obesity, we have an epidemic of diabetes. The generation being born today, if current rates of diabetes continue and treatment doesn't improve will actually have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. The first time in American history this has been the case. Why is that? Well, a big part of the reason um, uh, is the fact that we have such cheap sweeteners in our diet right now, and that is because of corn, the overproduction of corn. Uh, we're consuming high fructose corn syrup only came on the market in 1980. 1984, I think, that all the soda companies switched. Uh, over to it. And in that time, we are now chomping down or guzzling 47 pounds of high fructose corn syrup a person. Now, you might say, well, that's instead of cane sugar that they used to sweeten the sodas with. No, this is in addition. Our consumption of, other sh of plain sugars, cane sugar, has risen also. So we're talking 50 extra pounds of sugar simply uh, since the late 1970s, um, which is exactly when the obesity epidemic tracks to. Um, we also have an epidemic of foodborne illness. A lot of this corn ends up in feedlots, where it uh, leads to uh, E. coli in the meat system, and um, which is directly traceable to feedlot diets. Um, so it's another. You know, you may you, you're probably starting to think this guy has a really cornocentric view of the world. 
And I can explain just about anything wrong with the world in terms of this plant, which I do love also. I love to eat corn, but not. this is number two corn. This isn't really food. This is an industrial raw material. I'm, I, I like corn on the cob. Um, money, cheap food, is really expensive. This food system is costing the government $25 billion a year in subsidies. So to make all that cheap food takes a lot of money. It's, it's charged not just to the public health, the cost of that food, it's charged to the public purse as well. Um, food security. This corn industrial complex is a highly centralized, highly precarious food system. And we've learned that when all your hamburger is being ground in one plant, um, it's a very easy way to contaminate a lot of hamburgers. Um, when all your salad is being washed in one giant sink in the Salinas Valley, it's a very easy way to convey E. coli to a lot of people. So the concentration of this food, of this system, is also unsustainable. Um, and lastly, and this is kind of the reason I, I, I think it is unsustainable, an unusual reason, um, is that it depends on something that can't last. Eating the way we're eating, eating feedlot meat, eating industrialized uh, uh, um, processed food depends on ignorance. The more people know about their food system, the less tolerant they are. And animal agriculture is only the most um, salient example. But to the extent people look over the high walls, the increasingly high walls of our industrial meat production, they really don't like what they see. It's really unappetizing on the other side. And so the system, though, depends on keeping the prying eye of the public and of the journalist out. I can't go to big feedlots. I can't go to big slaughterhouses. They will not let you in either. And you have to wonder about any food coming out of a kitchen where they won't let you look at how they're making it. Um, and that is a, that is a very important uh, aspect of the industrial food system. It is opaque to us. And they don't want you to see how it's made. And, um, but the truth will out eventually. And eventually, people will see how the food is made. And when they do, and we see this already, they demand change. They demand a different kind of meat. They demand that the animals be treated better. They demand that they be slaughtered in a cleaner way. Um, so that's another sense in which the industrial system is unsustainable. Now, the hunger for alternatives to this system is fierce right now. We see it. There's a lot of evidence of this. Organic food, fastest growing segment of the food industry. I think it's up to, uh, it's going to be up to $18 billion this year. Um, this is an industry that began with very little help from the government. In fact, the active in, um, impeding of the government uh, is now a big and successful market. Uh, the most successful food chain in the country is Whole Foods, which is selling an alternative. Um, or at least what is billed as an alternative. It isn't always quite as much an alternative as they lead you to believe. Um, the, uh, uh, you're finding, but in addition to that sort of industrial level change, um, because I think organic food is quickly becoming an industrial kind of food, um, we also see farmers markets. The number of farmers markets has doubled twice in the last 10 years. We don't see this. Um, but um, there are billions of dollars being spent in farmers' markets today. The reason we don't see it and it doesn't show up is nobody's paying taxes, obviously. And um, uh, so this isn't really reported, but 
I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there's a farmer here who's paying all his or her fair share of taxes. Um, but it's a big economy. It's an underground economy, by and large. CSAs, a community-supported agriculture schemes, also growing leaps and bounds. So people are looking for an alternative. And I was not content in this book to paint a dark picture of the food system. I was really bent on finding alternatives. Um, and so I went looking. And um, I'm, I'm only going to talk very briefly about my kind of quasi-disappointment looking into the world of industrial organic food. But, and I, I'm really reluctant to say negative things about it because it really is better than industrial food in many, many ways. And there are farmers, even large organic farmers, who are taking better care of the land. But there is a drift, I think, in organics as it gets big to move toward what is really the original sin of industrial agriculture, and that is monoculture. And I spent time visiting some of these monoculture farms. And uh, the temptation when the market is saying, just give us tomatoes, we want tomatoes from your organic farm, or just give us chickens, we just want chickens, or just eggs, to repeat some of the problems. And I visited some of these. I, I spent time at uh, Petaluma Poultry visiting uh, Rosie, the organic free-range chicken, uh, which is the common chicken in California. Does Rosie make it all the way to Colorado? Oh, okay. Well... Rosie, you know, on the, on the labels, looks like she's living this idyllic life with a little 30s farmhouse, picket fence, silo. And, um, but when I went to visit, and I should point this out, because I want to say a couple positive things about Petaluma Poultry, who grows Rosie, um, they did let me come visit. They did invite my class to come look at their factory farm. And that would not have been true, I'm sure, at Tyson. Um, but anyway, um, Rosie is not quite living the life uh, as pictured. Um, there are 20,000 Rosies, and I knew there wasn't just one, but there were 20,000 Rosies in each of a dozen chicken barracks. You, could, you really can't call this a farm. It was, it was a set of barracks by the highway in Petaluma. And when I stepped into to Rosie's domain, um, there were these 20,000 all-white, identical birds, and they all kind of moved away in a cloud, and they moved back as they got used to me. And I looked around, and, and they were all indoors, and I said to the, well, I was going to say farmhand, but it's, really a, it's not really a farm. It's a confined, concentrated animal feeding operation, a CAFO. So I said to the CAFO hand, so what, what's with the free range? Why, isn't, why, why doesn't Rosie get to go outside? And he pointed, and there was a little, there was a little door this big at each end of this 100-acre-long building. And they said, there's the door. They go outside there, and there's a yard outside. And I said, yeah, but the door's closed. And uh, he explained, well, we don't let Rosie out till Rosie's five or six weeks old because we're really afraid Rosie's going to catch her death of cold. We can't give them antibiotics because they're, um, uh, because they're organic. And, you know, 20,000 genetically identical birds could get sick, and then you lose the whole house. And that's a very important point, that practicing organic agriculture on an industrial scale is actually more precarious than industrial agriculture, which has the props of pharmaceuticals. Very, very important point. So to do that, they have to keep Rosie in until she's five or six weeks old, and her immune system is built up. And I said, oh, OK. So you open it at five or six weeks. And, and then when does uh, Rosie go to meet her maker? And, um, and, they, and uh, the capo hand said, oh, seven weeks. So, <laughs> 
So it appears that Rosie's uh, free range is, is not really a lifestyle. It's, it's sort of more like a two-week vacation package. <laughs> but in fact, when they do, I said, well, when you open the doors, does Rosie, do, the, do all the chickens stream out there? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Why would they go outside, he said. The food's in here, the flock's in here, the water's in here. They're terrified to go outside. <laughs> so there's the occasional adventurous chicken. And uh, so that's the organic free-range chicken. Um, it didn't fulfill my image of what organic should be. It wasn't a brutal system by any means, but it wasn't exactly what was, was the, the pastoral image being pretended to. And that worries me because I don't think that's sustainable. I think when consumers start to realize that organic is not as it depicts itself, very often, not always, but very often, um, that consumers will turn away from it. And I think that that would be a, a shame because there's a lot of very important things about it, and it is a better system. So I went looking for a more radical alternative, um, and I found it, I think. Um, I had heard about a farmer named Joel Salatin uh, farming in the Shenandoah Valley, and I called him when I was doing all this research on organics, and I said to, uh, said to him, I'm really interested, what's your take on Whole Foods? What's your take on Walmart? And, and this guy, he is just a, uh, an amazing um, kind of evangelical. It would be wonderful to have him here in this space talking. Um, he describes himself as a Christian conservative, libertarian, environmentalist, lunatic farmer. I actually think he should live in Colorado Springs because all the different aspects of his character could be so well taken care of here. Um, and I encourage you to invite him. Um, and he went on with this, this rant about the organic empire and why he wouldn't sell food to Whole Foods if they came begging him and he only sells locally within 50 miles and... And, uh, and he gave me all these salty quotes I was looking for. And at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I hear you're growing these terrific, I was living in New York at the time, I hear you're growing these terrific uh, pastured chickens, and I'm wondering if maybe you could send me one. And he said, no, I can't do that. And I said, oh, maybe, well, he's not set up for shipping. So I said, well, I can have the FedEx guy with a, come with a styrofoam box and dry ice, and you just have to put one in. And, and he says, no, you don't get it. I don't believe it's sustainable, organic, if you will, to, uh, to fly meat across the country by FedEx. And I was so embarrassed that I'd asked. I mean, you know, I'm supposed to appreciate the value of local agriculture, and I was trying to get him to FedEx me some meat. And he said, you know, we try to practice what we preach. Um, and he said, uh, if you want to taste my chicken or my beef, you're going to have to come down here to Swope and try it yourself. And I did that eventually. I, I went down to Swope and um, twice to visit him and see his farm. And I want to very briefly describe it because in searching for flesh to put on this skeleton of a word called sustainable, which is honored in the breach because there is a lot of even organic agriculture that is not sustainable, that takes more energy than it gives us. Um, uh, I think I found it on this farm. And He's not the only such one, but he is a model for a, a certain kind of agriculture. Um, very briefly, Joel has, because I, I do want to leave plenty of time for questions, and I have a few things to say about local agriculture as well. Um, Joel practices a very elaborate polyculture, six different animals, turkeys, rabbits, chickens, both layers and broilers, uh, grass-fed beef, pork, occasional lamb. Um, only 100 acres of open land, another 400 acres of woodlot. Very hilly area, not well suited to crops. It had been cornfield for many years. The land was completely wrecked. Gullies everywhere, rock coming out. It just was not a good place to be growing corn, but it was being grown there for the same reasons it's being grown everywhere. Um, uh, 
Every animal is in a symbiotic relationship with every other animal in this farm. And I'll give you only one example of two species in one relationship. And if you want to read more about it, um, you can go to his website or look at the book or, um, or go to my website. I've written some pieces about it. But this really impressed me. And I should tell you that I, I, I didn't just approach this as a reporter. I did make one reporting trip to his farm, but then I realized to really understand this, I was actually having a conversation with Wendell Berry, and he said, you know, you can't understand any farm unless you've really spent time there. You can't do it in one day. You've got to go back. So I went back and I asked Joel, could I be a farmhand for a week? Could I come work on your farm? And I'll do whatever you want. I'll do whatever the farmhands do. And he has these interns. And, uh, and he said yes. And I went the first week of June, which was actually kind of a bad choice because those of you who farm know that you know it's sun up to sun down. And those are the longest days of the year. <laughs> and I've never worked so hard in my life. And I mentioned, uh, you know, so we were up at dawn moving chickens and moving cattle. And, and um, I was living in a trailer with his mom. And I'd never slept in a trailer before. And, you know, everything in a trailer is scaled down. So it looks kind of normal. But when you get into the bed, it's really only five feet long. And there's no ventilation. And, and I, I mentioned he's a Christian conservative. There was no alcohol or tobacco. I, I'm sorry, or caffeine. I don't, I don't smoke. Um, there was no alcohol. I would have, though, if there were caffeine on this farm. I was desperate. Um, so it was a, a really long, long, long week. But I learned a lot. And the thing that really impressed me was um, when we moved the cattle, which we did every day. He practiced a, a version of uh, holistic management, which is to say intensive short-term grazing. Um, and... Uh, this is, he uses these um, portable electric fences, this new technology, which is really the key technology here. Uh, these are fences that I could carry a quarter acre paddock on my shoulders and set it up myself in 15 minutes because it's so light. Electric fencing, plug it into a car battery. Um, so the cattle graze one day in a paddock, quarter acre, eat everything down evenly. They can't leave it much of anything. And then at the end of the day, he comes to move them. Now, I had thought moving cattle would be, you know, a cowboy scene, and we'd have to have plenty of chewing tobacco and a pickup truck and screaming and dogs and all that kind of stuff. But it was not like that at all. The, 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 the animals knew the drill. They knew that they were about to move to that paddock where the grass was this high, and it was the end of the day, and it was really sweet, and they couldn't wait to get there. So Joel just opens the, the, the gate to the paddock, and he stands there, and he looks more like a maitre d' than a cowboy. <laughs> And they all trot at pretty fast clip and settle into contentedly munching their, their tufts of grass, that, that sound of cattle ripping grass out of the ground that is such a beautiful sound. Um, then, okay, so intensive grazing. Um, then he waits three days. And at the end of three days, he tows in this portable chicken coop that he calls his eggmobile. And it houses 350 laying hens. And um, he tows it in with his tractor. It's, it's not a fancy contraption. It looks like a prairie schooner. It's made with bits of you know, aluminum and wood. It, it's not a very pretty thing. And um, it's got these gangplanks, though. And he lowers the gangplanks and outstreams 350 you know, eagerly gossiping hens. And they fan out over this paddock. And what they do is, oh, I have to go back and tell you. Why did he wait three days? He waited three days because he was growing the maggots in the cow manure to be as big and nutritious as possible. Because what the, the chickens do as soon as they fan out in that paddock is they go right for the cow patties, 
and they dig through them, and they eat all the larvae of the flies. And he calls them his sanitation crew because they are taking care of his parasite problem. And as they're doing that, and this is their favorite food, and he, so he wants those fly larvae to be big as, and chuffy as possible. But if he waits four or five days, they're going to hatch, and he's going to have a huge fly problem. So that's why he, he has to understand the life cycle of the fly to make this all work. And there were fewer flies on this farm than I'd ever seen on a, on a farm, on, on a cattle farm. And um, so anyway, so they, they fan out, and they, they're eating all the larvae. And as they do that, they're picking through the manure and spreading it. And they're doing a third thing. They're performing ecological services for this field. They are also manuring it themselves with their high nitrogen manure. And he knows exactly how many days to leave 350 laying hens on a quarter acre paddock before it's too much nitrogen and he's going to have a runoff problem or he's going to burn the grass. And then he moves them on to the next one. And it's this dance of animals and manure. And it's going on over and over again. And there's several different relationships. But I want you to just take a minute, and we're going to look at this a little more close up. I mean, talk about local food. We're going to get really local for a second. Um, I asked Joel when I got there, okay, you grow turkeys, you grow beef, you grow chickens. What do you call yourself? Um, And he said, I'm a grass farmer. And I'd never heard that expression before. It seemed kind of weird to me because there's no grass in the market. We don't eat grass. We We can't digest grass. But what he meant was the grass is the, is the keystone species of this ecosystem that he's created, because it really is an ecosystem. And um, the health of the grass is the key to everything. So let's look at the grass plant. And in fact, when I got to the farm, the first thing Joel made me do was lie down on the grass on our bellies with him, and we looked at the grass. I was eager to meet the animals. He said, no, you've got to meet the grass first. And um, he explained to me what happens. When those cattle come in and shear that grass down, um, to, you know, an inch or so. The grass plant reacts in an interesting way. Those of you who are gardeners know that you need to maintain a certain balance between the, the leaf mass and the root mass of a plant for it to be healthy. And so when you transplant plants, you've got to cut green parts so that, because they don't have enough root, uh, root hairs to, to water the, the tops. So um, what the plant does when it's been sheared is it wants to shed a corresponding amount of root mass. And it basically kind of cauterizes it. And the same amount of roots as has, you know, mass dies. It's killed off by the plant. And what happens to that? Well, all the the soil microbes, the earthworms, the fungi, everything goes to work and digests those roots. And they break down. And lo and behold, they become new soil. This is how soil is created. This is how the Great Plains were created. This kind of cycle of grazing and, and, and pulsing of pastures um, with the help of animals. Um, and, and you build soil from the bottom up. I didn't understand that at all. And so as a result of this system, which is producing a huge amount of food on 100 acres, he's getting like 40,000 pounds of beef and 30,000 pounds of pork and 25,000 dozen eggs and 20,000 broilers, and the numbers are all in the book, um, off of this 100 acres. It's a very intensive kind of agriculture. At the end of the season, something incredible has happened. There is more soil, not less. There is more biodiversity, not less, because of the health of the soil. There is more fertility and not less. Now, that is a radical idea. That is beyond sustainable, because... When you think about it, you think about the human relationship to nature. And I'll bet you that you conceive of it, even though you might not use these words, as a zero-sum relationship, such that for us to get what we want from nature, 
whether that is food or energy or even entertainment, nature is diminished. There is this, there is this process of subtraction. We believe this. We accept it. We take it as our tragic lot in life. Um, he is proving, and he again is not the only one. There are ranchers practicing this kind of grazing all over the state. He is proving that, in fact, our relationship with nature needn't be a zero-sum relationship, that there is a way to organize that relationship with the help of animals that actually leaves the land in better shape than we found it. And that is an immensely... It's an immensely hopeful message. It's the best news I've gotten in 30 years about writing about nature and the environment. Um, so, very, very important. Now, part of Joel's dream is, as I said, he only sells his food locally. That is as important to him as the way he grows it. And I want to see a couple, say a couple words in favor of the local food economy. Um, and I want to phrase them a little differently, perhaps, than you've heard them. Um, you know, we're told now it's sentimental. It's soft. It's reactionary to go back to local food systems. Um, that the future is a globalized food economy where every country uses its comparative advantage to, to grow what it can do well and ships it to other places. Um, food will be produced wherever it can be produced most cheaply, sold where it can be produced most dearly. This is where we're moving. This is indeed even where organic is moving, which is toward China, where a lot of our organic is starting to come from. Um, and indeed, a lot of the reasons we like local agriculture sound sentimental. And let me, let me review some of them very quickly. We like the idea of keeping farmers in our community. We like what they bring to our community. We like the diversity. We like their wisdom about nature. Okay. We like the idea of keeping land near us in production and not turned into tract houses and strip malls. Um, we like the idea of using agriculture to defend the land we love. We like eating food in season picked at the peak of its both taste and nutritional value. Um, we like what happens at, socially at the farmer's market. The farmer's market has become the new public square in this country. Somebody, a sociologist did a study. You have 10 times as many conversations at the farmer's market than you do at the supermarket. Um, but think about it. Here, city meets country. Where else does that happen these days? Um, people politic. There are always petitions at my farmer's market. Uh, and they schmooze. Um, and if you compare it to the supermarket experience, it's completely else. There's so much more going on than the, the exchange of money for food. It's not a zero-sum deal. Um, and I think we all like how farmers markets or CSAs let us reconnect through these plants and animals to the farmers in the natural world. We like what our children learn at the farmers market. They learn, and they may not know this, that a carrot is not a glossy orange bullet that comes in a plastic bag. <laughs> it's a root. It's a root. And this is news. And you get that news at the farmer's market. So I am fully prepared to defend local food on those supposedly sentimental grounds. Um, and I would point out that these are some very interesting non-zero-sum relationships. Um, but let me move the argument onto some other firmer grounds. Let me suggest that it is, and this is the business part of my lecture in honor of the economics department. Um, let me suggest that it is the globalizers of food who are the real sentimentalists, who are, as Wendell Berry says, and this is the definition of sentimental economics, acting on a faith for which there is, as yet, little justification. 
They are in some ways not unlike the Soviet communists, who, they, who were the last great destroyers, of course, of local food systems. And remember the message to the Soviet people. We must destroy this so we can build a better food system, a more efficient food system. Um, and uh, yes, there will be a sacrifice in relationships and a sacrifice in farmers and a sacrifice in landscapes. But if you let us destroy those things now, and in fact, the Russians were given no choice, there will be more prosperity, more food on yourselves in the future. We must, as Lenin famously said, break a few eggs to make an omelet. But what could be more unrealistic, more soft-headed, than to propose we should destroy things we value in the present, things we have now, for the uncertain promise of some future benefit? And I'll remind you that the Soviet Union founded precisely on the issue of food. Their highly centralized food system could not feed them, and local food systems sprang up everywhere, and people abandoned. At the end of the Soviet Empire, 50% uh, of the food was being sold completely off the grid um, in gardens and small local farms. Um, I think we need to stick with the eggs and keep them from cracking. Let me suggest that there is nothing more hard-headed or realistic than building and defending local food economies. And I want to make the hard-headed case, and then I'll close. Um, and indeed, to do so is a matter not only of critical importance, to net, but uh, economic importance, but it's of critical importance to our national security, yes, and our public health. So let me count the ways. Energy, first way. The global food economy depends on cheap energy. I learned yesterday from Mike Calicrate that uh, Walmart will be, uh, has a scheme where they're going to actually slaughter chickens here, ship them to China to have them cut up and turned into chicken breasts and parts, and then ship them back. This is global food at work. We can't afford that energy. Um, we will not reduce our dependence on foreign sources of energy or confront the issue of climate change without dealing with this industrial food system, without decentralizing it. Um, we have to remember, each of us, merely by the way we eat, are putting four tons of carbon into the atmosphere by our food choices alone. Simply by giving up industrial meat, by the way, you can cut that by a ton. Um, sovereignty, another hard-headed reason. Do we really want our food system to go to the way of our energy system? Do we want to be dependent on other countries for our food? I don't think if people thought it out, they want to go there. Um, we're not getting a chance to decide this, but that is what is at stake. Um, and that's where the globalizers of food want to take us. National security. The government knows better than we do the risks of a centralized food system. We had a glimpse. There was a moment after 9-11 where there was a, an attempt to consider this question. And in fact, when Tommy Thompson left the government, he said at his farewell press conference, a very interesting thing, he was asked what had surprised him after being in Health and Human Services and Homeland Security. He said, for the life of me, this is a quote, I cannot understand why the terrorists have not attacked our food supply because it is so easy to do. Why is it easy to do? Well, he commissioned a report from the General Accounting Office and they said because it's highly centralized. You put microbes in the right hamburger plant and you can sicken half a million you can kill a half a million Americans. Um, any government, uh, this system is, is highly vulnerable to both deliberate and accidental contamination. That is simply the cost of centralization. 
What is the government de doing to deal with that threat that they so clearly recognized in 2001 and 2003 when that study came out? Exactly nothing. They are encouraging the further centralization of the meat supply and indeed the whole food supply. Um, public health. Uh, another example, we've had this terrifying example of the E. coli outbreaks this past fall. Uh, again, the result of this over-centralization. All our organic lettuce, 82% of it is being washed in the same sink. Um, and, uh, uh, so, and that's a very risky thing to do, uh, as the government is just starting to recognize. Um, so those are some really kind of hard-headed reasons that I hope will get the attention of politicians, and that there is a lot more at stake here than quality of life, um, but there is really these issues of security, these issues of public health, and local food is not the answer to all our problems, but it's a very important part of the answer. Now, the question is, how do we get from here to there? If the government won't protect the local food system, won't protect our land and our communities and our economies, we have to do it ourselves as consumers slash citizens. Indeed, we have to reinvent that word, consumer. It's a really ugly word. It's a word that derives from that zero-sum view of the world. Because consumption is using things up. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can reconceive our role as consumers and infuse our consumption decisions with the broader, more collective consciousness of the citizen. And that's really what we need to do. And I think we're seeing this happen. Imagine a different concept of the consumer that incorporates the citizen, um, that sees himself, herself, as a member, not, not someone just prowling the aisles for good deals, but as a member of a biotic and a political community. Um, we can shop for value in the debased McDonald's sense of the word, value meals, or we can shop with our values foremost in our minds. We can redefine the consumer as a creator because that's where these alternative food systems are being created by consumers. Um, now, for most of us, yes, this takes a lot more work, um, more shopping, more foraging, and most importantly, perhaps, more cooking. Because if you shop at the farmer's market, you're not going to find any TV dinners. You're not going to find any high fructose corn syrup. You're going to have to cook the food. And, but a whole lot of things flow from that. Um, now, we're too busy. We don't have enough money. How can we possibly pay more money for food? Because local food, healthy food, clean food, well-produced food does cost more. It is inescapable. Um, and I would only suggest that we have to face the fact that we're not spending enough money on food and that we need to pay more and eat less. Now, that's not a very popular message, and it can sound very elitist. Um, and I understand that. And, um, but. I would also say that we are paying less of our income on food than any people on this planet, than any people in the history of humankind. Less than 10% of our income on food this year, 9.5. To give you an idea, when I was a kid, when I was a boy in 1960, that amount was 18%. Okay? It's, it's fallen from 18 to 9.5% in just those 35, 40 years. Now, I'll point out something else. Is that such a bargain? In that same period, the amount we spend on health care as a percentage of income has gone from, you know what it was in 1960? 5%. You know what it is today? 16%. So you see, these two graphs have crossed. And there are many reasons for the high cost of health care, but I can't help but think one of them is 
eating crummy food. And that if we would spend more on our food, we could spend less on health care. And that really, we have to make the calculation in that sense. That what is, thank you. What is cheap at the register is very expensive in other areas, the externalities that Mark was talking about. Um, so we have to create a consumer who understands that wonderful Wendell Berry line, that eating is an agricultural act. It's also a political act. It's also an ecological act. We have a very precious vote. In fact, we have three of them a day, many more votes than we have in any other part of our lives. Um, and we're not going to cast every vote in an optimal way. We're going to still cast some lousy votes. But if you cast one of those votes in a good way, voting for local food, voting for organic food, voting for humanely raised food, you will bring about a huge change. I've been told by some economists that merely spending $10 more a week on food could lead to substantial changes in this food system. We can help create the world we want to live in, one delicious bite at a time. And I want to just make one last point, because I want to hear your questions. As much as we can vote with our forks, and we do need to vote with our forks, we also need to vote with our votes. And we're coming up on a very important debate. I want to just say a quick word about the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill is about to be uh, debated this year. It's just starting. The administration just put forward its proposals. This bill, very obscure, really boring, really complicated, but attention must be paid because this bill sets the rules of the farm system, of the food system we all eat from. It is the reason that corn has taken over our landscapes and our diets and the diets of our animals. It is the reason that high fructose corn syrup is so cheap and abundant. It is the reason that our animals are on feedlots um, and have left the farms. It's all because of agricultural policy. It's not a function of the free market. It is not a function of nature to be feeding ourselves this way. It is a function of choices being made by our government with no input for most of us. Because basically, the Farm Bill is a negotiation between the farm state senators and representatives with very little input from anybody else. And the reason they've been able to get away with that is because no one else is paying attention. So that my representatives, I have two very progressive senators, make terrible votes on the Farm Bill year after year. Why? I assume they're trading them for other things they want from Tom Harkin or whoever. Um, so if your politicians know you care about this, if they know it's not really a farm bill, it's a food bill, it really is a food bill, and you have a stake in it, we'll get a much more progressive piece of legislation. Because this piece of legislation will determine whether we're supporting fresh produce, and making that accessible and cheap, or are we supporting corn and soybean? It will determine whether small ranchers survive or whether uh, the big four control all of meat. So it's really key, and I urge you, don't even let them call it a farm bill. It's a food bill, and it's your fight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.